Welcome to The Real Work, a podcast about opening access to career success and workplace belonging for everyone. Presented to you by the team at Lantern Rouge. Through these community conversations, we want to learn and share how careers actually work and how we show up for each other in all manners of professions, unpacking the experiences that shape us and how we can each play a role in designing our future of work. Here is your host, Alex Lamb, an organizational psychologist and the chief executive of Lantern Rouge. My guest today is Sanya Goff. Sanya is an attorney and partner at Heart Muirhead Fatter, based in Jamaica. Sanya was called to the Jamaican Bar in 2003, and she now practices corporate, commercial, and intellectual property law with a special interest in the area of pensions. She advises companies and trustees on pension risk, plan restructuring, and governance. Sanya serves as a director and president of several financial groups and pension industry associations in Jamaica and is an active member of the Jamaican Bar Association. She speaks internationally on pension reform and is Jamaica's 12th Eisenhower Fellow, having been selected for the Eisenhower Fellowship 2020 Women's Leadership Program. In this conversation, we talk about her pathway to partnership, her experiences sitting on high-profile boards, how she approaches her family and career priorities, and how she came to find her niche and passion for pension reform. Sanya exemplifies a lot of the habits and mindsets we encourage in coaching, and it was a pleasure to understand her personal discovery of what works best for her career. Enjoy the podcast. So welcome, Sanya. So glad to have you. Thank you, Alex. Thanks for having me. Really good to have you. So our last guest was uh, someone called Atlanta St. John, and she is um, in the management team of the Harlequin women's rugby team in the UK. She was an awesome person to interview about female sports and the, the progress they're making with their athletes. And she had a suggestion to you. Um, her call out was be better than what she was at rapid response. That's her words, not mine. Uh, and speak with passion and really showcase your profession here. She found it a great opportunity to represent. So that's her gift on to you to get us started. All right. Yeah. So tell us, you know, we've heard a bit in the intro there about um, some of the professional passions that you have, the work and the, the important, um, particularly in this space of pension. So you've recently been selected for the Eisenhower Fellowship program. Did that relate to your work in pension reform or is that a separate program? Definitely connected. So mm. I've been practicing as an attorney for about 17 years and a big part of my practice, as you mentioned, was in the, is in the area of pensions. And that started out really just advising clients on their pension plans. And it has morphed into really looking at, um, or adding to that, I'm now looking at kind of macro development and policy reform, pension restructuring in my country. And what the Eisenhower Fellowship really focuses on are women who are mid-career, um, mm-hmm. really leaders in their, in their respective fields, who have a passion for improving their, um, the lives of their citizens in their home countries. And so pension reform was a natural platform for me to, um, you know, represent and demonstrate as being my objective under the fellowship. Because how the fellowship works is that you, everybody has like a platform or a project and it's supposed to be something that really advances, you know, peace, prosperity, justice in your country. And so for me, you know, pensions was just a natural, you know, natural linkage for me because it's just so much a part of my legal practice, but also where I see myself really making a contribution for national development. Um, you know, at one point in my career, I was, you know, I'm a corporate commercial attorney. I'm 
you know, opening and closing transactions, you're making money. And I was like, this can't just be it. Because mm-hmm. growing up in high school and in university, I was so involved in volunteer work and, give, you know, community um, development and those contributions. You know, I was a part of a lot of volunteer organizations. And not because I needed to fulfill some kind of school requirement. I truly mm-hmm. enjoyed it. I had that interest. And then mm-hmm. I this kind of in practice and just working and just working and just not feeling like I was really communicating or, I mean, really in touch with, with, with community development. Mm-hmm. And I really am happy that over time, my passion for pensions has really allowed me to see how I can make a contribution to Nisha Visit. So yeah. the Eisenhower Fellowship is going to be really good in supporting that. Fantastic. And so you obviously had this, by the sound of it, a personal interest in having an impact and also a professional skill set in terms of the work that you were doing in pension. Where do you see the impact in terms of the end um, outcomes and the results for the people in Jamaica if you're able to achieve some of the recommendations that you have for the reform? So the, the, I think the two biggest areas that I would, would count as success would be, one, an increase in financial literacy for mm-hmm. Jamaica an understanding of the importance of saving, saving for retirement, financial empowerment, financial independence. And you can't get there unless you actually have literacy, you actually understand. So the public education pro, you know, programs and policies and initiatives um, are important. Now, the Pension Industrial Association, where I'm the president, that's a big part of our mandate, but it's hard as one single lobby organization. As much as Jamaica is small, you really do need support from your regulators and from the government. And then the second side of it is actual pension coverage, pension participation, because you can know that it's important, but not do anything with that information. Mm-hmm. That knowledge doesn't take you anywhere. And so getting moving us from a place of really 10%, 10 to 15% if you include the public sector workers, in terms of their participation in a pension arrangement, to doubling that and tripling that over the next 10 to 15 years. Now that's that's re- a really big ask. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not going to be done by a private sector-driven um, lobby group. It's just not going to happen. So it's going to require a partnership with the government. And we're already seeing some, some work in that area and some interest in that area. We recently had some you know, national elections and we didn't have a change of government. And so what's good about that is that some of the work that had started in pension reform mm-hmm. will continue. Because whenever you have a change in government, you have a disruption in policy, right? And so what I see as, as success, what I would count as success in 15 years would be increased financial literacy and um, um, doubling or tripling of pension participation. Mm, okay. And are there any cultural elements that you see that are unique to Jamaica? Because I know you would have been looking at pension funds and the compare and contrast to other countries as well. So what's the uniqueness that you see? Excellent question. Because when you're talking about changing mindsets and shifting behaviour, you know, you can't do that in a vacuum. So what we have in Jamaica is a large percentage of our population, they're low-income workers or informal workers. So immediately you have a challenge where culturally the, the thinking is, I just need to get through tomorrow. I mean, literally that's your, 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 your reality. And so asking somebody who's in that situation to think about saving for when they're 65 is ridiculous, you know. Um, for many individuals, they live in prime, you know, crime-infested environments where, you know, the thought of living to 65 is actually unusual because of, mm. yeah. And then, of course, you have issues of healthcare, et cetera. So it's hard to kind of, to, to make that case in a, in a reasonable way for people to say it in the traditional ways, which is why we would have to find um, programs and, and um, 
initiatives that take pensions from a different angle. So mm. what has worked in a lot of countries with a similar demographic to Jamaica, meaning low-income informal workers, is what you call a micro-pensions program. So micro-pensions has been um, significantly successful in like India and Rwanda. And interestingly, I have fellows on my program from those countries who have actually heard of it. I mean, those are not their specific initiatives, but it'll be good to kind of bounce some ideas with them. So I'm looking forward to that. But essentially what it contemplates is small bite-sized savings over um, um, often over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. So we're not asking you to take 20% of your income every month because that's just not your reality. But we're talking about asking the fish vendors, the market vendors, the coconut, you know, the coconut man, the taxi drivers to just make small, small contributions a few times a week or a few times a month over a sustained period of time to contribute to um, a pension arrangement. But just yeah. to be clear, we do have a national insurance scheme, which is okay. supposed to be like our national pension program. It's a social security scheme. So it's more than mm-hmm. just pensions. But a lot of the informal and low-wage workers don't participate. Mm-hmm. So another way we could look at it is enhancing the NIS system, the national insurance scheme system, to find a way to adapt and kind of onboard low-income and informal workers in a way that's palatable for them, that's not overwhelming. And by doing that, they can participate in a scheme that's government-run um, and that has more than pensions as part of its, its, its um, suite of benefits because it has disability benefits, it has ill health, it has you know um, funeral grants. And those are things, maybe even more meaningfully than a pension, would be immediately more relevant to them, you know. So you can bundle um, it in with things right. like value. Mm. Exactly. So for me, my, my 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 hope is that even through the fellowship to understand not so much, you know, micro pensions, because that's not really an initiative that you find in the US, but what are the best practices around communication? Um, you know, what are the best practices around empowering financial literacy and financial independence? And also what are the best practices around just participation generally? Forget what mm-hmm. you're participating in. You know, there are some behavioral economics and behavioral, you know, human behavior that I think if we understand a little better, we might be able to tap into and encourage better participation. It's good to hear you mention. I mean, you're speaking my language with the behavioral economics part. And I know um, there's obviously so many angles you can come at it from of the, the policy, the government, the actual financial right. instru- instruments. But as you're explaining it, it's how do you support an individual to opt in and <laughs> what makes this compelling? Right. And so there's this behavioral economics angle of a nudge. And that's what we find mm-hmm. from a psychology perspective is so often when people have scarcity, even if they have the knowledge, so maybe in this case the financial literacy, they might not use it because the scarcity just creates such a near-term view of, yes, I need to invest in pension, but I also need you know, gas for my car today. So I don't have that range of, of thinking. So, so, yeah, how do you make it about really near-term benefits to people? Because pension makes it sound like, as you say, it may be something I will or won't use. <laughs> so have you seen anything, any insights that you've found from, from that nudge or the behavioural economics perspective that you're exploring? So we haven't really seen any rollout, really, of those initiatives. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had a few speakers kind of, you know, pass through the country and talk about it. And things. So that's part of why I think the Eisenhower Fellowship will allow me to learn a little bit more about that and bring some of those perspectives to Jamaica, you know, not as a to purport to be a kind of psychologist or an economist of anything, but just to say, listen, this is really what best practices show. These yeah. are the learning and there's some, what can we, how can we build on this? And mm. so, you know, um, it re- it's important as well culturally that you don't, 
you know, return from fellowship or from studying abroad with a know-it-all attitude, right? So you need to, it has to always be a kind of collaborative posture, a kind of gently bringing in the perspective without suggesting to the regulator that you, you, you don't know what you're doing and you haven't known for the last 15 years, but I now know because I went on a fellowship, right? Yeah. So, um, it, but it's about seeing how we can kind of introduce that and weave it into the fabric of, of our considerations around developing macroeconomic policies for specifically in, re- in relation to pension security. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and bring a, as you said, bring it back in a in a way that can be acceptable to people as opposed to off-putting because it's an exactly. outside-in maybe perspective exactly. as opposed to. It sounds like everything you're doing is homegrown and with with listening and experience of of on the ground. But so that's a really nice segue into the Eisenhower program of for you. Obviously, this is a an opportunity to create and experience a global network of peers who are all having impact in different, very cross-functional areas, <laughs> cross cross intersections of of um, whatever their passions are. So as you're going into this, I understand that there's a, a programmatic element to it. So w- what are you hoping to take away and, and learn from that? So I must tell you, Alex, I am very excited about it. Yeah. Like, very excited. So it officially starts next month, but they've already had these kind of lead-up programs where we've been meeting other fellows. So because of COVID, this year, we're going to do the first part of it fully um, remote and fully online. And then next year, if travel actually resumes and it's safe, Mm. we would have a bunch of um, in-person activities and programs, right? But even online, there's, there's there's a lot of energy. And like you said, you know, I'm so fascinated by meeting these women who are making contributions in their respective spaces in areas that are so diverse and you're it's surprising maybe there are about four or five of the 25 maybe about four or five women who have some form of um program or project relating to mental health and well-being mm-hmm. so I'm just focus on women some are just kind of workplace well-being but a kind of well-being mental health type of thrust and then everybody else is kind of quite different. I mean, I'm the only person talking about retirement security and pension reform, which, by the way, I'm so excited about And people must be like, this is so boring. <laughs> We've heard it. Tonight, I know yeah. it because there are so many people who have said to me, what, like, pensions, like, why on earth do you find interesting? <laughs> I don't know. I really do. And I find that I take every single element of development in my country, I take it so seriously. Like, any guideline, the FSC issues, I, like, I'm just all over it, like, a man woman. But anyway, so. Um, the hope is yes, it's a networking fellowship, right? So the by and large is about meeting people, and their their network is extensive, not just former fellows. When I say former, they're always a fellow, but persons who you know from former years, and mm-hmm. they have all gone on to make like significant impacts in their different you know spaces. And so it's about that those networks opening like other networks. Um, mm-hmm. And so my hope is really to meet people who really are behind the pension space. One in terms of like I said, literacy, participation, and just understand basic good governance. Because at the end of the day, you know, sometimes we get caught up in the sexy and the, you know, the fancy and the new, the new, the new talk. But the truth is, just basic governance, transparency, you know, properly run plans are that's that's important to understand as well. And also not being distracted and feeling like everything's perfect in the US because it's not. Because there mm. are pension schemes that haven't been run well. There are persons who don't have any pension coverage, who, you know, participated in schemes that wound up, went insolvent, et cetera. So understanding the lessons out of those failures as well, mm. as part of what I'd, I'd like to explore. Quite a few universities in the U.S. as well, they have been doing a lot of studies in 
low, you know, developing countries. And so there are lots of, you know, learning from those studies and the results of, and the findings from those reports. So it's really multifaceted faceted in terms of where it can take you. Just in, the, just in the few conversations I've had, I've realized that even though I'm kind of looking at micropensions and looking at participation, at the end of the day, my project could probably take on so many different kind of, it can morph into something else. Because mm. Just by talking to other people, you're realizing, hmm, I really thought the solution was over here. But in fact, it might right actually be over there, you know? Yeah. Um, and what I've realized is that even talking with a few of the other women, a lot of them have as an underpinning theme education, that whole talk about literacy. So whether it be about mental health, whether it be about um, physical health, whether it be about financial literacy, which is financial health, it's all kind of quite a few of them. And I think learning from each other in that respect is important. Um, in Jamaica, we have like culturally networking, as you see it in the US, that, you know, like in social media and on television, it's not quite the same in Jamaica. No, what so, is it like? So it's not as bold. It's not as yeah. um, kind of forthright. I've often said that when I meet persons who have studied in like the US, whether especially tertiary studies, they have like perfected what I call the elevator pitch. You meet them at the cocktail function, and within like the first minute, you ha- you have their entire CV in that yeah. one minute. It's as if they were trained to meet you, and in like the space of sixty seconds, they've told you where they went to school, what they're studying, and maybe two or three accomplishments. And you're like, wow. Um, <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> Let me respond with right? the same template. Yeah, exactly. We're not quite that bold as much as Jamaicans mm. tend to be very strong in personality. We we tend to have a kind of we're reserved where that is concerned, you know, we don't kind of step out in that way. And so um, the concept of how, how to best network and, and, you know, get the most out of the fellowship, I really have to focus on that because it's not, it doesn't come naturally, you know, mm. um, but the program officer, everyone gets assigned a program officer who kind of works with you to set up appointments and meetings. And so she's been really good. And I, I think she'll help me to kind of bring me out, you know, um, and she's very good at saying, okay, not every meeting needs to be a pensions meeting. Let's talk about meeting some other people where the common interest is something different. Maybe you're just both Jamaican, or maybe you both have an interest in some kind of, you know, you like to kickbox. So let's find somebody, you know, just something else. Yeah. That can help to kind of break it up a little bit. Or maybe you're even completely different and you just get energy from each other. And, oh, as you said, that's completely out of my box for the the thinking. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, so I'm looking forward to that, but I'm also going to have to spend a little time in terms of just kind of pulling, you know, pushing myself out of my comfort zone. Yeah. Um, being okay, asking questions, you know, not just kind of ending every interview or every meeting just as it is, where it is, but where, where can we take this? You know, what's the next step? Um, what more can I get from this interaction? So, yeah. so that's my hope. Um, there are a lot of people who talked about the fellowship. These are, you know, former fellows opening doors professionally for them. Um, I haven't really focused on that. I mean, my hope is that at some point I will transition out of private practice into something that's more policy driven um, mm-hmm. and, you know, maybe even moving into helping to develop better pension arrangements in other Caribbean countries um, and Latin American countries, just in terms of mm-hmm. my Caribbean space. Um, and then, of course, that would require, you know, relationships and partnerships with NGOs and kind of multilaterals. But that's, I mean, a good 10 years from now but yeah um, I, I'm, I'm still I'm definitely open to that because I don't want to be I, I really don't want to be in private practice until like I'm 70 I'm just not interested in that you know yeah so my hope is that you know relationships like this can help to kind of broaden my perspective on opportunities 
available. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a real exploration. And when you, you, you're talking about your potential career looking forward, which I think is always a great, you know, um, great horizons to consider, especially in this program. If you look at backwards um, through, I guess, your study and your volunteering experience and then early careers in, in private practice, what would you say are some of the key moments or um, pivotal points where you had either a decision or a key experience that have kind of brought you to this point? I think some major, major turning points in my career would be one when I was um, invited to sit on the board of National Commercial Bank. Mm-hmm. So National Commercial Bank then became NCD Financial Group. So I'm sitting on the board of two publicly listed companies. I would have been the youngest female um, at the time. And that was huge. Yeah, yeah very impressive. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think I, I mean, at first when I got the call, I was like, me? <laughs> I was, I was just so, I didn't even think I was on anybody's radar in that way. How did they identify you? Well, that's the thing. I'm not sure you know, what the internal conversations were. Mm-hmm. I know they were looking for a female director. And I know they were looking for a younger director. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, how my name got on a short list, I mean, I, I would have done legal work and interacted professionally with many of the, the directors um, on the board already. So they would have known me. But in terms of, you know, kind of getting on the list, I, I don't know. What I will say, though, is that that was, that was major. That was a huge turning point in my career in that so, it, it certainly catapulted me into the rooms, into the boardrooms, into the conversations. And I was at the table, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was, it is, and even now sometimes can be very overwhelming um, because of course I'm in the room with persons who could be, you know, my parents um, with networks 10 times as deep, with experience, you know, 10 times as broad. And this is a financial institution. It's a bank, it's a publicly listed company. And I practice law. I'm not, and they weren't bringing me to be their legal advisor. They had a suite of legal advisors already. Mm-hmm. And so kind of finding my place on the board, you know, where, where do I fit? What really are, will my contributions be? Um, you know, for some people, their contributions are very focused on particular themes and, you know, aspects. And some people is very broad. And I just really, I, I struggled very much in the early stages to kind of find mm-hmm. my place. And even now, I find that there are times when I second guess contributions. I'm kind of like, I'm not sure, should I say this? Um, and, and that tends to be a challenge. Um, but I, I definitely feel that I've gotten bolder over time mm-hmm. and more confident over time. So that was, that was big. Um, and I think that, like I said, got me you know, in, the, in the room at the table. And then I was later, maybe about three or four years later, I was invited to sit on the board of another, another listed company. And... Um, so I think those two those two invitations were significant. And just so you know, culturally yeah. in Jamaica, board appointments are are deemed to be a meaningful contribution to your yeah your resume, your CV. Absolutely. You know, yeah. professionally. There are some jurisdictions. I mean, even in the Caribbean, where board appointments aren't seen that way. But in Jamaica, no, it's considered to be quite a it's significant. A, it's a big deal. Yeah. ADC yeah. too, that's, in my mind, that's the way I take it. And so I know in Australia, you take various courses. Uh, probably a lot of them have to do with a, a legal reference point and, and some of the governance, um, you know, responsibilities, et cetera. Did you have to go through anything like that in Jamaica to be, I guess, you know, qualified or have a, um, a license, so to speak, to be a board member? No, 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 no. no. Um, you have to make it done proper. So to be a board member of a publicly listed company that's a financial institution, 
you have to be determined to be fit and proper by the central bank. So I had to be vetted in terms of financial background and you know, never been convicted of an offense, that kind of thing. But um, I didn't have to be trained to be on the board. But that being said, the board, the company does have training um, requirements for their directors, but it's not a central bank or legislatively required training. Requirements, yeah. You're expected to, you're expected to kind of keep up on trends and um, not only read independently, but they do have their own training programs. And all mm. the financial do that, yeah. And so when you look at, you were saying, okay, it took me some time to work out my contribution and, and to make sure that you felt like you were adding your uniqueness, your point of view. Obviously, they brought you in for a reason because you brought that right. diversity of thought and the perspective that they were trying to, to achieve. So what do you think it was that helped you build that confidence? And then what is the contribution? How would you describe your unique additive mm-hmm. effect there? So I think in terms of a lot of it was uh, the passage of time. That's for sure. Mm. Just kind of getting more comfortable, um, reading the room, reading the room um, properly. Um, sometimes you can take the wrong cues. Um, you know, in terms of just people's responses, where where the board tends to focus its attention. So you know, ensuring that you don't major in the minor, um, just simply to be able to say something. Um, and so over time, and let me tell you, I'm a woman of God. I'm a very much of you know. S- s- Christianity is a big part of my life. And um, and so a lot of it has been prayer, prayer in terms of preparation for meetings, prayer before meetings, you know, mm-hmm. asking the Lord to really give me that right voice to be bold, mm-hmm. but not to be brash, to be, you know, to be confident, but not to be obnoxious. So to kind of give me the words. That, so I, that has actually been a big part of my professional journey. And I feel That's like, good I credit, yeah. yeah, I credit like that spiritual kind of, kind of, um, direction um Mm. as a big part of 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 where i am right now yeah that's really Um, interesting i think even whether it's a prayer or it's a moment of collecting your thoughts and setting your intention (laughs) and i guess in in a sense asking for inspiration as well (laughs) i think that's a really nice um experience to have whether it's prayer or mindfulness or or reflection to come in and to come out of a key performance moment Yeah. yeah So that's, that's been, and in terms of like where I feel my impact the most, um, you know, I can't help it. Law is a big part of it, law and governance, because that's just kind of what I do. So that's, I can't leave that at the door. And then also, um, I'm very, um, what's the word? I'm kind of very diligent in terms mm. of my review of things. So, um, and that's what I think helps me even in private practice as well. So I'm very detail oriented. Um, I'm very task driven. So, so, you know, even reading board papers, I don't gloss over things like I pick up inconsistencies and notice discrepancies, you know, and so I'm able to kind of bring that kind of tightness, I think, to board review, board documents, board, board conversations where I'm like, okay, but that's not what we said last week. When things kind of, you know, we move along so quickly, we're not quite keeping a tight tab on things. So I think, it, and I guess I would pin that on the governance as well, because that is a big part of governance, broadly speaking. So if I had to kind of put it in like two quick words, I would say legal and governance would be two mm-hmm. areas that I can have in terms of the contribution. That's it. And now that you're on two boards, do you see yourself playing a different role or having a different contribution based on the dynamic between the two or Definitely. the difference Definitely. between them? Yeah. Yeah. So NCB is a financial institution. So already they have a you know a lot more layers in terms of regulatory obligations and compliance. Whereas Jamaica Producers is more into logistics and food and beverage. So it's a relatable brand in a different way to, you know, just in terms of growing up as a child, just in terms of as a consumer 
of financial pr products versus a consumer of actual, you know, food and drink. And so that, and the board culture itself as well is very, is very different. So at the financial institution board, of course, it's a lot more kind of meticulous, you know, very, very um, mm. uh, surgical and specific in terms, of, mm. in terms of what how we document minutes and what we're saying and be very precise. Um, Jamaica producers is a little bit more relaxed and the culture is a little bit more friendly. Um, many of the directors have been on the board for like years, decades, um, you know, family, friends in many respects that they know each other. There's a, there's a relationship outside of the board. And you see that it's quite effusive in the boardroom as well. And so um, conversations, even how we move through board papers, is quite different. Um, so, but yeah, definitely. And, and that took, took some adjusting too, because of course I would have gone into the Jamaica, Jamaica Producers boardroom a few years after being kind of inducted into NCP. And I initially kind of had an NCP mindset, but I have to shift it, you know, when, it, when the time comes to, to, to being Jamaica Producer. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So interesting. And coming back to your career moments, I can imagine that becoming partner was, you know, it's a key milestone in in my mind, being outside the, the legal profession. It's such an achievement. I'm sure it is. So anything you can explain there with regards to the trajectory, the work, the experience of having that that moment in your career? Right. So so my 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 path was a little different. I was an associate at a law firm, Matt board, one of the largest law firms here. I went straight from law school to Miles Fetcher. And at the time, certainly, Miles Fetcher was like one of the, was the best law firm in, in the island. It was one of the largest, most successful. Um, I was there for seven years. Um, during the time, I got married to my now husband. So we would have been together from law school. Um, we both got offers to join Miles Fetcher and Gordon at the same time. Let me just backtrack a little bit. Gavin and I have been friends since we were 11. We were in the same class in high school uh, and we went all the way through high school together just friends just you know um during what we call sixth form which is the last two years of high school he went away to boarding school and um that's when he would have met mike and then um i would have continued in jamaica and then we both ended up in law school together which is a five-year program basically friends through the entire time so it was the last like final year of law school things kind of started and so when we both got offers at the same law firm, we're still very early in the relationship. You wouldn't make a decision to not take up the offer based on because of this very new relationship that may or may not work. So we both ended up working together, which I can just tell you is not healthy. For, <laughs> it's a not healthy. romance, yeah. yeah. Yeah, don't think about it. If you have a choice, just avoid it. But anyway, so we started working at the law firm together. And it was fine. I mean, the relationship was open. People knew about it. But once we got engaged, I mean, there was a, we, it was at a point when we were both eligible for, for partnership, you know, in right. the next kind of year or two. And then we got married. And they have a policy that does not support married partners mm. in the partnership. And so it was a big question around who would leave, who would stay. And let's just say that it was a very, very challenging time for our marriage. Mm. because um, it was a very challenging time. Both of us felt we deserved it. Both of us deserved it, in fact. Um, and the partnership, as in the partners, the existing partnership had said they would decide who they would take. Mm. We wouldn't be the ones to choose who, you know. So that was a little tricky. Um, and so um, I think kind of word got out that somebody needed to leave. It was, it was quite a talked about um, 
situation because, you know, a lot of, you know, lawyers knew there was this issue at Maya Fetcher, you know, what was going to happen. And then I was headhunted. I got an offer from a headhunter um, at PwC, actually. And there was a law firm, a Caribbean law firm, who they were looking for a partner. They were looking for two partners, actually. So I interviewed and um, actually flew to Barbados and interviewed for it. And then um, I got the offer to take a partnership in Jamaica. So it's a Caribbean law firm, but it, um, it has a footprint in Jamaica, Barbados, and Trinidad. And so that was great. And I was, would have been transitioning in as partner. So that was great. I went from associate to partner in this Caribbean law firm. And that's where I got exposure to a lot of the corporate commercial law, um, mm. the banking, the finance, the insolvency kind of work. So that was great because that's, I wasn't doing much of that at my special. So I went on, took a partnership there. Gavin eventually got elevated to partnership at Myers. Um, but the environment at that firm was, was quite toxic. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very unhealthy. And it was during that time I decided to leave. I got offered the NTE directorship. And I actually left without any job to take up. I just okay. left. Um, so once my notice period expired, I just left. And then I was offered, approached and offered partnership at my current firm. And it was, like I said, before my notice period even ended, I, I had a, a partnership offer. And that's, you know, God opening doors that no man can yeah. face because mm-hmm. there you are, you know, you've resigned, you've decided that you've had enough of this. Um, you don't have a, a substitute job or a new job to replace it with, but I had, a, I had faith that this was not, you know, it was going to happen. And I got this offer, HMF, as we, you know, refer to Hartmere Head Fatter, is an excellent firm. It's about a medium-sized firm, a lot of good corporate commercial work. And um, I really have seen my practice really blossom into mm-hmm. this you know and um so I'm, I'm i'm happy where i am i it's a comfortable work environment i have good partners good work a lot of good experience and it's like i said a strong co- corporate commercial firm so it, it was a different in terms of my journey for a lot mm. of people you know you're associates and you're working and then you're kind of selected for partnership and no i kind of became a partner i was headhunted to be a partner in another firm so when i was approached by my current firm the only conversation was about partnership so, so that's kind of how my trajectory went. So interesting. And it's always good to hear the kind of non-traditional stories <laughs> because there's choices and there's, um, there's decisions that you've made along the way. And, I mean, if I reflect back to you, some of that is around, you know, the size of the market that you're in um, with regards to, you know, okay, there's one top firm and you're, you're both in the, the same industry. Some of it's about family and family decisions that we're making and then I also heard themes of just taking a chance (laughs) like saying okay this isn't the right thing for me let me make decisions based on my my gut and my ethics as opposed to you know I guess the traditional job trajectory so so interesting and so from a, a family perspective I think it's 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 not uncommon to hear these stories right now because you know with COVID and and so many people's workplaces now being into their home places, family and work have sort of collided. It sounded like that happened for you earlier than COVID because of the, the industry and the story that you've shared with regards to, to Gavin and the first firm. But like, is there anything else that you see now of like you and Gavin are both still in the legal profession? You know, I imagine you've got really demanding jobs with, you know, client facing responsibilities. How do you balance having, you know, family and these these career passions that are obviously taking you taking you places. Yeah. It's it's challenging. It's very challenging. Um, and you know, I 
the truth is that you have to kind of face each day determining what are going to be priorities for today. Mm. Um, so I, I've, I've had to really rethink what balance and, and prioritizing looks like. And, you know, you get guilted into feeling like you're not always putting your son first. Well, in my case, my son, you're putting your child first or you're not always putting your family first. You're somehow like a bad person or you're not, mm. you're doing it wrong. And I reach a point where I recognize that, no, there are days when my clients come first. They do. And that doesn't mean I love my child any less. It just means that right now, with all my responsibilities, that's what I need to make a priority. Um, it, no, at the end of the day, what's most important to me doesn't change. It will always be my family. It will always be my son, my husband. You know, I have a great village, Alex. I mean, my family is a tight, close-knit family. It's a healthy relationship. Mm. Everybody's healthy physically. You know, everybody's doing well. And so, we, you know, it's a healthy environment and my village is really strong. And over the years, my friends who are a part of my village, that number has dwindled to a solid like four or five and that they're like family as well. And so there are times when there's, there's no question that they're the most important part of my life, but there are times when they can't be given the priority of my time right now because of what's competing. So I have, you know, commercial transactions that have to close. I just have to be, you know, present for that. Um, I'm president of the Pension Industrial Association. Sometimes the lobby effort or you know, a particular moment in time in the industry is so important. It has to take all my time. You know, it's not billable time. It's not time for family, but it's so important in terms of regulatory development. I need to be pouring through this right now. Um, and, but I, I try not to lose sight and to, to kind of not tap out too often because I need to be really aware, okay, when did I really spend quality time with Julian, you know? Mm. Um, maybe it means that today I'm going to have to leave a little early or shut off a little early. And I mean, I employ everything from alarms. I mean, I'll set off alarms, label the alarms, you know, stop work now, go to Julian. Like literally I label the alarms, <laughs> bedtime, story time, because you will have the time run off. And before you know it, he's fallen asleep and you didn't really actually get up from your desk. And so I try to be very mindful with that. Um, I also am very big on like, you know, in terms of spending time with him, you know, like art and craft stuff. So I just try and do something because I yeah. realize that for kids, they don't need a lot. They just kind of need you present, right? So they yeah. need to know that you're, you're kind of spend the time. Um, and then there, there are times I'm properly guilty, especially around like spending time with like watching TV and on the tablet. And I'm just, I'm just wanting to be happy. So I'm just kind of giving because I know I've not really spent, you know. But, but I, I moved away from a, this concept of work-life balance to mm. work-life integration. I'm yeah. recognizing that, yeah, there's sometimes when I'm putting him to sleep, he's already half asleep. He's on his way out and I'm sending an email. I'm doing work because it's actually convenient and I'm able to do it right now. You know, um, I'm taking him to the doctor and we're not quite ready to go in and he's occupied and I'm dealing with something. Yeah. So the, the concept of balance is more, I kind of moved away from that to a conversation in my head around, you know, just work-life integration mm -hmm. and kind of better weaving all the elements together, but recognizing that nothing is wrong with um, prioritizing elements in your life you know, at specific points in time that don't involve your family. And you're not a bad person because of that. In fact, probably highly, you know, more effective um, if you're able to kind of successfully do it. But checking in is important because you sometimes think you're doing a great job. <laughs> and your spouse doesn't feel that way. You know, he doesn't feel like you're really kind of paying attention. Or So, so it's important to kind of have those open lines of communication. Yeah. Kind of where, where sometimes you need to draw the line, yeah. Yeah, and taking the feedback cycle. 
I'm I'm in the same boat as you. I think everything is um, meshed together in terms of there's no strict delineations of I'm at work and then I'm at home. It's, you know, I can be thinking about work while I'm in the shower. So therefore I'm kind of at work. So, but it, it, it does start to come together and I find that I can be more efficient because I'm, I'm, I'm still present in the moment with what I'm doing, but I am snatching little bits of time to be useful in those moments as opposed to blocks. And so the one thing that I balance through is thinking, am I prioritizing other aspects of myself? Um, because I'm always snatching bits on the go and doing things for child, work, family, community, whatever it happens to be, do I snatch moments? And so for me, I try to block in, have I been for a run? Have I read a book this month? Have I, what, what does that look like for you in terms of personal time? Oh, that's a great question, Alex. Um, <laughs> and one thing that I love to spend time by myself. I really yeah. do. As much as I'm an ongoing person and I love my family and I have great friends, I love me some alone time. <laughs> and so like the major thing I love to do, I love to read. And funnily enough, as much as COVID has brought on a lot of pressure and work hasn't really stopped, I found more time to read. It's mm. a really good thing. So I've been reading a lot uh, and I love to read. That's been a passion for me as a child. What are you reading um, now? So right now I'm reading this book called um, The Decon, The Decon King. Yeah. So it's by, girl, you put me on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I never um, memorized the, the names. Yeah, yeah, I rarely do. But anyway, there, it's it's on the, it's, I think it's on the Booker, Booker Washington um, shortlist. I'm not sure. But anyway, okay. it's, it's really good. Um, I lost my train of thought. So, okay, I love to read um, kickboxing. So I do kickboxing yeah. in the morning. That's kind of my thing. I used to run a lot. Um, but I find that I've kind of transitioned out of my passion for, for running. Um, so I do kickboxing in the mornings and um, love going to the beach. Um, I love to travel, but as you know, that can't happen right now. Yeah. So we do a little bit kind of island traveling and kind of island touring now that it's COVID. But yeah, my alone time. And then sometimes, honestly, just meditation, just kind of journaling. Um, and I find that, to be honest, I need to do that a little bit more in terms of bringing that more into like a regular thing, because it really is therapeutic. It's so funny. Years ago, when Gavin suggested journaling to me, I was like, don't be ridiculous. I'm not doing that, right? I'm not journaling. I'm not writing anything. <laughs> I'm fully aware of what I'm doing. But I started it and I love it. It really does help to kind of yeah. steal your thoughts. Yeah, it does. And um, I wait too long sometimes. I think I wait till I'm really I'm feeling a lot of pressure. And then I'm like, you know what? I need to spend a little time to kind of jot things down. And I think if I was more um, mindful and diligent in terms of journaling with more um, discipline, I would be able to not kind of allow it to kind of pile up on me some of the stress. Yeah. Mm. Just this weekend, I was really feeling kind of overwhelmed, but did some journaling and it made such a difference. Yeah. It's good to hear. I think you like... It's, it's always nice when it's an organic thing that people go towards as opposed to having been, you know, prescribed, even though it sounds like Gavin suggested it. But, you know, when you see the value of it and you you, you really experience the benefits because, like, from a neuroscience perspective, they can prove it as well, just how much reflective activity you have and how many more insights and, and the, the like, the gratitude that tends to come out as well of just, like, poof, okay, that's out of my mind and onto a page somewhere. But... There's also something quite beautiful, I think, about handwriting because <laughs> we don't handwrite as much these days as we used to. And you handwrite at the pace much slower, obviously, than what you can think. So it forces a reflective practice as you're getting it out, whereas because we can touch type, 
of course, typing isn't as fast as thinking, but you're so much faster that it's much less, um, yeah, you, you're not going through a process as much. So, yeah, yeah it's really lovely well, to hear. Because I didn't even really connect it to, like, any kind of, like, neuroscience elements, but it, it makes sense, yeah. Yeah, any reflective practice. I think the things that you've shared around prayer, meditation, exercise, so, of course, the, the psychosomatic response of just, like, expressing things as opposed to having to say them all um especially like i love the idea of kickboxing i don't know that that to me brings a lot of um associations of being able to let out power and feel strength and yeah. maybe even sometimes have some anger come through as well so that psychosomatic response i think is super valuable and then the journaling is where you kind of making sense of it so in my mind you've got like a really nice circle um, mm-hmm. <laughs> a really nice um, circuit of, 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 yeah, of self-growth. And then, and then you add this network and you add these things that you're really passionate about. It becomes a very um, rich bed for creating, yeah, like something pretty amazing <laughs> to come. Yeah, I appreciate that validation. Thank you. <laughs> yes, of course. No, exactly. Not that you needed it from me, but it's just always um, because this is what I do for business is, is a lot of coaching and a lot of working with people on how do I embed these habits and these attitudes and these things in my life and my relationships that are actually going to help me flourish. And we spend so much time kind of repairing and supporting. And then when you hear people who have all of the, the kind of cornerstones in place, like, oh, <laughs> great. Some people, some people are actually, you know, practicing the, <laughs> the best ways of doing it. So we're going to wrap up with a couple of rapid fire questions. So I'll ask the beginning. Yeah, exactly. Again, Atlanta's <laughs> suggestion is, you know, be ready. So the first question, a skill I'm working on right now is? Learning to speak less. Speak less. Okay. In which situation does that skill apply for a lawyer? Well, I, I found that, yeah, I found that you, you don't mind talking like after each person. Like, no, okay. yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like, um, Alex, if I had to go back and do it all over, I would speak less. Hmm. I think I, I've learned probably, unfortunately, I think later in life than I would have liked the value of listening. Mm. and the value of pausing I tend to kind of just first thing out my mouth I'm going to say it my immediate reaction emotionally to someone a circumstance a, an email or anything I'm just kind of like in it. and learning the power of pausing and learning the power of kind of just re- reserving speech <laughs> and I think I need I'm I if I could do it all over I would I would learn I would have kind of employed those skills a little bit earlier so I'm, I'm working on that Speaking less, yep. <laughs> so interesting. Okay, so I want my kid to know that. That he is a leader. Yeah. I, I, I want him to know that he's a leader. I find that the concept of leadership has changed remarkably over the last 10 years because it used to be that, you know, growing up as, you know, we would have thought leaders had to be somebody who, you know, had a particular title, played a particular role in a specific organization. But you're seeing now that leadership is not about that. I mean, when you look at the Black Lives Matter movement, when you look at change that's happening for all these different kind of interest groups and um, um, associations around the world, being a thought leader, being a change leader, you know, doesn't look a particular way. You don't have to dress a particular way. You don't need a particular title, nor do you need Mm -hmm. a particular degree. And so I want Julian to grow up in a world and in a home where he's encouraged to lead. Um, And leadership involves immediately being a servant as well so understanding that leadership really means that you're serving 
And I hope to demonstrate that because both Gavin and I, you know, play leadership roles in our respective areas of, of interest, in our respective professions, in our respective practices. And understanding that, you know, growing up and seeing parents in leadership positions, um, whether they're traditional or non-traditional, whatever it looks like for him from his perspective, that 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 can be for him, for him as well. And that's a meaningful way to contribute to his community. Yeah, amazing. So many people misunderstand servant leadership, don't they? It can be quite a, um, a confronting language to hear, but actually when you can embrace it, it's so um, so powerful for the other people around and, and leading yourself as well. Um, if I take an intermission, we've got another rap, two rapid-fire questions, but I neglected to ask that what, what is the sensation of the Black Lives Matter movement on the grounds in the Caribbean at the moment? How is it touching, you know, in the same sense that we're seeing it here in the U.S., is there reverberation where you are? Definitely there's, a, there's an embracing of it and there's mm. a lot of kind of like conversation around it. Um, people follow it closely. I mean, for us in Jamaica, what happens in the U.S. touches us so significantly. So close, geographically, yeah. yeah. And, and in terms of our reliance as trade partners, etc., a lot of Jamaicans um, have migrated to the U.S. So the Jamaican diaspora is really heavy and concentrated mm. in the U.S. And so what happens there really affects families here. And so there, there's definitely an embracing of it. Um, there's a lot of conversation and dialogue around it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's meaningful. Um, we have a lot of our own um, cultural issues and mm. um, issues around crime and violence and you know, our economic issues and challenges. And so you know, oftentimes there's a conversation around you know, American politics and American social issues taking up so much of the narrative for us out here when we have our own to deal with. So you find yeah. that there's, there's always a lot kind of happening in terms of on the ground in Jamaica, but yes, we definitely we watch it. We we can't, you know, we, we, we communicate about it, we talk about it. It's in editorials in the papers, articles are written. It's a big conversation piece. That's good to understand. Even though it takes different iterations in different cultures around the world, I think we just have such a moment to be, you know, like you said, thinking about our local issues, but opening up more of that discussion um, for whichever catalyst and making sure that it is unique to, you know, the culture that you're in, but by the sound of it, at least there's discussion happening. So hopefully out of a lot of pain, there's some silver linings of a reimagining and a, and a, and a dialogue, as you mentioned. Good. I'm glad to understand. Thanks for sharing. I'm, I'm always so intrigued how things are working on the ground. Um, so my next question, my biggest advantage is... <laughs> <laughs> Ah, uh, I know it's supposed to be rapid fire. My biggest <laughs> advantage is that I am bold. I think so. I think my biggest advantage is that I'm bold. So as much as on the flip of it, I need to learn to manage how quickly I speak about things and how you know how, how I react. So there's a boldness that I, that I have, um, and I and when I'm passionate about something, that comes out even more. Um, and, and it may even come out aggressive because I find that there are unfortunate, um, you know, there's unfortunate nomenclature that that's attached to when women are bold. So, mm. you know, you're, you're seen to be passionate or emotional or worked up versus a man who is, um, forthright leading. Yeah, you know, exactly. mm. yeah you get those words when it's a man and, and that's unfortunate, but, um, and that's a challenge that I have, you know, um, where you know I'm, I'm forceful on a particular point with the regulator or where you know arguing about a point and I feel really strongly about it and it's like oh my god why is she getting so worked up but if a man was doing the same thing 
that's not the word you would those aren't the words you would use right but yeah. i would i still own it as a a strength mm-hmm. um and and honestly alex understanding timing and temperance is important in any environment and so you know i don't mean to be and i don't ever want to be unapologetically bold because there are times when that's just not yeah. the right implement for the environment so i i see it as a as a positive i see it as a as a strength of mine but I recognize as well that I continue to have to to learn timing and temperance, no matter notwithstanding. Yeah. To land for the audience and to get the outcomes that you're aiming for. Yeah. So boldness, but with um, some kind of temperature control, <laughs> knowing when to turn it off or turn it up. Yeah. But definitely you have it. Um, you know, just in terms of you know great leaders and require the right people to be around them. Mm-hmm. And understanding what that looks like, because for me, even as a president of the P- of the PIAJ, there are times when you have to get really combative to kind of push forward for the change you want. But but knowing when maybe this particular conversation or this particular fight is not the one that you need to be the face of. So I find the right person in my organization who, as you said, is going to land it the right way, because I know that this conversation with this person needs a different angle. And I don't. I mean, and I have to recognize whether. I have the ability to, to, to really bring that across in the, in the required time, right, the required moment. And that's important, recognizing where you're actually not strong at all and what's required, what particular strength is required in, in, in a particular environment. Yeah. So I think leadership requires surrounding yourself with the right team as well. Yeah, and deploying and, and utilizing and actually knowing their strengths. Um, yeah. It's, um, yeah, and I'd add like my own reflection on that is also knowing how not to take things personally, even if people are directing personal things at you, how to not direct it personally back at them. There's roles that we're playing <laughs> of my role is to get this outcome, your role is to push back. And, right. and whoever is coming in and out of that role, it could be anyone. Those two roles are going to be opposing. So recognising yourself in a position to get an outcome as opposed to me, Alex, <laughs> being the bad, the bad right. person in, at heart, really. It's a hard thing to dissect from, but um. So, final question: My gift to the next guest is. All right. <laughs> so, my gift to the next guest is to be relaxed. Um, you know, be prepared. Um, and to to be yourself. I mean, be honest with with your experiences. Um, it's very easy to kind of dress it up. Uh, but, um, you know, the environment is very welcoming to kind of just reveal about what, what your life experience has been. So be relaxed, be yourself. Fantastic. I like it. I will definitely pass that on. So thank you, Sanya. I really enjoyed it. It was just such a great conversation and I, I got to meander through your world. So I really appreciate you being so generous. Thank you, Alex. And thank you for inviting me. And it's really good to see you. I hope we can actually be together again soon. I know. Absolutely. So close. And yet, so far I feel that way (laughs) all right thank you the real work wouldn't be possible without the contributions of our whole team here at Lantern Rouge production support is managed by Mark Hayes and our beautiful music is brought to you by Artlist that's it for now see you at work